Today, I'm speaking with Tim LeBon, a registered psychotherapist, accredited CBT therapist, life coach, and author living in Surrey in the UK. Low self-esteem and perfectionism cycles. So that's why this self-esteem is another vicious cycle, yeah. because it can just, even though it's a bit of a puzzle otherwise, you know, see so a parent when when you were you know, a kid told you you weren't good enough, but you've had all these, all these, you know, you're 40 now, you know, yeah. uh, why, why do you <laughs> still you think enough? that? Yeah. Well, actually it's because you're looking at, at the world as if this belief is a hundred percent true and you're interpreting everything as if it is true and you're doing stuff that actually yeah. sometimes makes it true. So any contrary evidence uh, or in any specific instance, you just, dis- you disqualify it and say, well, yeah, yeah wow, here's yeah. the alternative reason why. Yeah, they only me. accepted me because I was nice to them. I see. Yeah. That kind of thing. People with low self-esteem, they might very often have periods where they they seem to be okay, although they generally won't be flourishing as much as they would be otherwise. But they will also be prone to periods of anxiety and depression, as can people with with clinical perfectionism. Because it's a bit of a puzzle as to why people are both anxious and depressed at various times. But Mm. both of these these possibilities uh, explain it. Yeah. It suggests that one of the core... Uh, ways that you might try to have more robust um, mental health is to set up the exact reverse system where you need to have like negative feedback loops where if you feel bad, then you need to do uh, like lower your standards, for example, and, and be like far more nice to yourself, like be particularly uh, compassionate and particularly, uh, what's the term, accommodating of yourself in those times in order to like lift yourself back up. And maybe to some degree, the reverse, you know, when you start feeling maybe a bit too good about yourself and a bit too confident, then you need to uh, remember that, uh, you know, maybe maybe things will go worse in future and uh, tempering down your expectations. Exactly. So very often, once you've mapped out someone's particular cycle, uh, the solution is to do the opposite. So, for instance, if you're ruminating about all the bad things that have happened, you'd stop doing that and maybe think of all the good things that have happened. So part of the uh, the treatment for low self-esteem is a positive data log, which is uh, thinking of all the good things you've done, mm. particularly things that contradict your negative belief about yourself. And, uh, and again, all those thinking traps we mentioned earlier, like discounting the positive, mind reading, fortune telling, jumping loose, People with low self-esteem do that, do, do a lot of those things. You'd, you'd teach them how to challenge those, those things so they'd have a more balanced view. How 80,000 Hours Contributes to Moral Perfectionism What concerns me, potentially, is that idea of doing the most good coming back to that old brain, new brain thing, I think the way that we're designed as human beings, we're going to favour ourselves to some extent. We're going to favour those nearest and dearest, as the expression goes, Mm. to us. So even if logically we should be totally impartial, there's going to be a bit of our brain that rebels against that, I suspect. Yeah. So having it as an imperative to do the most good you can all the time even if that isn't actually what is meant, I think some people might take it to be that. And, you know, particularly maybe they have this parental message, you know, that mm. you've got to achieve the most, then that is potentially makes them very vulnerable. And then if there are people in the organization coming back to that mythical survey we spoke about mm. who would, who would answer, Oh, you're a terrible person because you did such and such or didn't do such and such, uh, then that's not going to be great either. And I, again, I don't yeah, know to what completely. extent those, 
you know, I certainly hear clients fearing that that might be the case, but mm. I don't know to what extent that really is the case. Uh, yeah, I don't think it is true. Uh, I mean, at least, well, I can only speak for 80,000 hours, but mm. I think if you did a survey like that, you'd find that everyone is extremely tolerant of the lifestyles that other people want to want to lead. I mean, even people who do nothing to improve the world, to be honest, are perfectly accepted as uh, friends. And uh, um, I, I think there's a perception that there'll be enormous amounts of moral judgment. And I'm sure that that, that I'm sure that's true of some people, but mm. uh, at least, I don't know, I... I have friends out there who have virtually no interest in altruism or doing good. And to be honest, it doesn't bother me. It almost doesn't bother me to a kind of remarkable degree. But their friends, what about if they were working for 80,000 hours? So if you had a colleague who, well, I mean, I suppose I've learned from all of the experience with with these issues that in general, it's extremely counterproductive to have a mentality that you always have to be like giving the absolute maximum uh, to work. So I guess I suppose I know on the kind of pragmatic grounds, uh, I think it's foolish to have these kinds of standards, certainly among uh, a group of people who are already quite inclined towards altruism and, per- and perfectionism to, to start with. It's like it's just throwing too much fuel on a fire that's already well, burning exactly. perfectly healthily. On top of that, just just speaking for myself, I no longer have the energy I feel for like massive amounts of moral judgment about uh, people's people's work. I just have other things going on. And I, I guess it's not I don't find it that fulfilling or satisfying to think about ways that other people are failing morally anymore. I think maybe like 15 years ago, uh, I had like more fire in my belly about this. Uh, not not that I was ever super judgmental, but yeah, I, I guess there's just interpersonal variation on how agreeable you are and, and how much you think about this. Exactly. So as I said, most of the people I've, I've encountered as clients are very n- lovely people and haven't got that OCD personality where they're in, they're insisting other people have the mm. have the high standards. My worry would my worry would would be that it's just there in the in the ethos, as it, as it were, that as a kind of yeah. oh, that's what we think is expected of us. The importance of enjoying what you do and having a holistically good life. With regards to careers advice and again i actually don't know what you say to people that come for careers advice yeah but if it was hypothetically i've I've done this little calculation and this is the job where you do the most good Mm. and this is what you've got to do that would worry me because the way i i like to think of it is there's a a kind of venn diagrams of uh, a job that you can have a high impact in a job that you're good at a job that you would actually enjoy and find personally satisfying and a job that would pay the bills. So those four four things. Mm. And I think you want the bullseye rather than doing a job that because it's the one we've had the most impact and you hate it yeah. uh, or, 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 or it doesn't pay any of the bills you need. Now, and I, again, I don't know the type of advice that, that you give, but I would be concerned if it was... Too, if it pre- was too prescriptive. Too prescriptive and, and too too much just discounting you know oh you might not enjoy it but you've got a moral imperative to to do good yeah i mean i i think in practice if people got one-on-one advising or they read the website carefully they would find that this kind of personal fit and the importance of you know enjoying what you do and having a holistically good life is, is emphasized quite a lot and uh, I, w- I would be shocked and a, and a bit dismayed if anyone had a one-on-one session where, where they were ever told like here's the job that you should definitely uh take i suppose maybe you would get uh you know this is probably the job or this might be the job that is highest impact but you know you have to consider all of these different other factors as well it's extremely hard to have a message that is suitable and beneficial for everyone, given the enormously different starting points that that people are coming from. So, 
part of our message is about doing, you know, doing the most good and you can have a really big impact with your career that's partly orientated at people who have never thought about this at all and maybe are not really aspiring necessarily to do to, to help people at all with, with their career. But of course, the same message falls on the same ears of people who are already very concerned about how much good they're going to do and already have extremely high expectations about what they might accomplish in, in their career. Uh, and for them, it's like it's too much. It's, it's you're, you're overloading someone with particular thoughts that uh, that are they've already got a good level or maybe they already have uh, have too much of it whereas there's other people potentially who need to i guess in our view at least should think about this more because they're currently not thinking about it almost at all yeah that that would be my model that um it's just extremely hard to have a message that is beneficial to everyone and doesn't doesn't backfire in some cases i think that's right i think it's it's almost like i'm thinking of a a temperature gauge and you know uh, there'll be someone at this end who need to go in that direction there's someone at that end that actually may need to go in that direction yeah and if you're giving whatever general message you're giving it's if it's taken too literally or people think it's about them uh or they misread it or misunderstand it then it, it could backfire yeah one thing I might add before you go on is just that uh, I waste an ungodly amount of time and I spend lots of time just doing stuff that I enjoy that I don't think makes the world a better place necessarily, uh, except by making me happy. And I waste lots of, well, I spend lots of money on myself and I don't feel guilty about it at all. And my colleagues seem completely fine with this. So I've never gotten a hard time from anyone. <laughs> so I suppose, if yeah, if as a listener, your perception was that uh, if you did that, I would think negatively of you or that, you know, my colleague, you know, you wouldn't, working 80,000 hours would be terrible because everyone would just be breathing down your neck all the time about how you're not not the ideal moral person uh i think at least that that, that perception is, is is not the case though i know that uh that that won't necessarily make a you know so <laughs> make everyone feel uh, completely better yeah it's good to get that message across i think guided discovery and cognitive restructuring there's a mix of guided discovery or socratic questioning which means you're not telling the client something you're helping them learn from the experience so let's go to that so it's called a behavioral experiment the behavioral yeah. experiment that this client was set was to deliberately have a spelling mistake in a couple of emails and so how did how, did you do it yes what happened well i did it and i was a little bit nervous but then and nobody seemed to notice oh nobody noticed so how did you feel then okay uh, well maybe it doesn't matter so much so what do we learn from that well maybe I don't have to check my email. I don't have to spend 20 minutes checking every email so much. So that's guided discovery because mm. you could straight out go out and tell someone, oh, I never bothered to check my emails to see whether anyone's managing to write a mistake. So stop, stop checking. But if I did that, how would you feel if I just if I lectured you like that? How would you most likely feel? <laughs> Maybe irritated or not, not convinced anyway. Yeah. Exactly. There'd be some resistance. Whereas if it's set up as an experiment, there's two benefits. One is you're discovering it for yourself. The other thing which is beautiful about cognitive behavioral therapy is that sometimes there's an unexpected outcome. Now, supposing this person comes back and said, why did you tell me to do that, Tim? My boss was furious with me. Yeah. Well, that's not a great outcome because you don't want the boss to be furious with them. Sure. But you've learned something. Mm. You've learned that their boss is possibly someone with that OCD personality yeah, we were talking right. about. Yeah, yeah. And so there is a reality to their precautions and that maybe that's how they've ended up uh, with with this concern uh, well possibly kind yeah, of it, might, it might be that that's true of the whole workplace is, yeah. is it that so absolutely so you try and do a lot of that guided discovery but there is a place as well for what's called more didactic which might be for instance if you're teaching someone a relaxation exercise you can do it kind of socratically and say things like 
how do you relax and what's your best way of relaxing? Uh, why don't you try that again? But the problem might be that that someone just hasn't got that skill in their in their kit, kit bag. So there's certainly a place for for saying something like, "Do you think that a relaxation exercise would be would be useful before you're doing this big presentation?" Uh, and if they said yes, you'd say, "Well, there's a couple you might choose from. There's uh, guided relaxation. There's breathing." There's something called progressive muscle relaxation. Have you ever tried any of those? And they might say, yeah, I tried the progressive re- muscle relaxation. I didn't like it. Okay, so should we try one of the others too? And you probably try it in session and then give it, see how they got on, do a little bit of coaching to help them. And then that might be the home practice might be to do that, that breathing exercise every day, for example. Exposure therapy. That's why it's an important part of treatment, say for anxiety. And this is stopping back to your question about various treatments, which I only gave a very partial answer to. Yeah. Uh, to do exposure work. And sometimes it's uh, in the session, in vivo exposure work, where you're actually experiencing the thing you're anxious about. So, something that we treat quite a lot in, uh, I treat quite a lot in the NHS is obsessive compulsive disorder. Hmm. I haven't treated it amongst many effective altruists. I don't know, don't know why that is. Yeah. Uh, interestingly. So obsessive-compulsive disorder can take various forms. It might be someone who cleans a lot, and they, they might also have an intrusive thought, which is the house will burn down, and then the response would be to do a lot of checking. They would check uh, all of the electric sockets to see if they're all turned off, and then another doubt would creep in, and they'd have a kind of better safe than sorry attitude and then say let's check them another time then they go back in their bed and worry again and check it you know i mean we've all done that to some extent not not that exactly but we we, we probably you know particularly if we're stressed this is an example of what you're saying you know if if we're on holiday we think god have i have i have i shut that window and then sometimes we might even get halfway to the station and go back to check we lock the door so when we're anxious we tend to think that more but people with ocd they get into a real horrible pattern of having those intrusive thoughts and then doing the compulsive behaviours. And the problem is that those compulsive behaviours are then rewarded because it reduces the anxiety and so you can almost get addicted to them. Now, the reason that I was mentioning that OCD is that you draw out the map, you would say, okay, what's your intrusive thought? That causes you anxiety. And then you do the compulsive behaviour, which then relieves it. And then you might even get people to see that the intrusive thought is just a thought and it's probably not true and you might get them to see in theory that they don't need to do the compulsive behavior and that's what you would do as the first step of therapy but you won't really crack the OCD until they are able to resist the temptation to do the compulsion when they're really triggered so but the way now I, I just work remotely i just went mm. by zoom but before the pandemic i remember being uh, in uh, it's actually a doctor surgery i worked in in one particular setting and this person was worried about dirt so we went outside and you know she got her hands full of mud and then normally she would spend hours washing repetitively sometimes you know with bleach until they were all kind of sore so but this time she just washed once and then sat with the discomfort and so that is something called exposure. Actually, it's called ERP. It's exposure, and then you prevent the response. The normal yeah. response would be the compulsion. Mm. 
you do the exposure and then you don't have you don't the do the comp- well and you, then you, gradually you yeah, break the you cycle. want to do it hmm. but you you tolerate the distress and the more you do it the easier it is to tolerate the distress most important quality needed by CBT therapists. There's, there's a tension in counselling or therapy of this kind, it seems, where uh, so you don't want to tell your patients or your clients what to what to think because that would be uh, well, I mean well one one thing is it, is it, it might not work because obviously just lecturing people doesn't tend to go down super well. Uh, at the same time, of course, you do have kind of ideas or conclusions that you're kind of expecting or hoping that they that they might reach, and it seems like. In order to avoid this just being some uh, a sort of con where it's, you're, you're uh, leading people to particular predetermined conclusions and that you and you wouldn't accept things otherwise, you, you have to actually embody the attitude of what the person might say. Well, no, I think that work is ninety percent important and family and friends and being nice don't matter. Uh, and if that was what came out of their analysis of their own values, you'd be like, okay, well, we're just going to work with that, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to accept that uh, because it's not my place to to tell you what to think or what to what to value. Uh, yeah, do you understand the, the tension I'm gesturing at? Yeah. So what what do you think is the number one quality that yeah. is needed by CBT therapists? <laughs> Which could be one of those examples of a leading question, but mm. I generally don't know what you're going to say. Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like the thing that would be very useful uh, in this case is not uh, not having too strong views about like what values everyone else ought to have or how everyone else ought to live. Yeah. And in general, curiosity. Curiosity, yes. Curiosity is a, is a really helpful feature. But you're absolutely right. There is a tension... And again, particularly when we're short of time as therapists Mm. and we see someone in real distress, Mm. we really want to help them. And we think we know what the answer is. Maybe we've seen someone like them before and our pattern matching, Mm. thinking fast says, oh, they're just like client X. That client X was really helped by uh, telling them to socialize more. So let's tell them to socialize more. But it may be that this person is depressed because the people they're socializing with are really toxic and causing the problem. Right, right. So it really is important to slow down Mm. and be curious. And and that's what the formulation is about, that that map. You know, we've got a general map, but what what is going on for this person? And when it comes around to values, yeah, I mean, as well as it being counterproductive, there's also an ethical concern that as Mm. a therapist we're trained not to just impose our values yeah it would be somewhat problematic for me to just challenge someone's ethical views because i disagreed with them yeah or i thought they were wrong stoicism and the dichotomy of control so there you are you're stuck in traffic you can't change the fact that you're stuck in traffic now but what you might be able to do if you can do so safely contact the people who are expecting you and tell them that you're going to be late. What you might do in future is set off earlier or go by train. And what you might do if you really are, like, or if you feel strongly about it, is have some campaign for a better transport system in the country. So that's why it's not about stiff upper lip or quietism, because there's this very important branch about aspects of a situation that you can change where you... You don't want to do your best to change it if it's worth changing. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, completely. So the case of being angry when you're stuck in traffic, or I, I often get frustrated or uh, anxious or even a bit ashamed when I'm running late for something, mm-hmm. and I do have to stop myself. And the, the interesting thing is 
the feelings, the negative feelings that you're having then, they have this intense feeling of being useful somehow. You feel like this is an appropriate reaction and Mm -hmm. to simply remain calm would be negligent somehow or failing to accomplish something. But I suppose, you know, often it actually is directly accomplishing nothing. It's actually just just causing you harm. But I suppose the the, the stoic approach would be to say, well, what like actual fun, like what could we do? Like uh, maybe you should learn a lesson about next time you need to leave earlier Uh, rather than just accept the, the, the emotions, think like, well, what, actions or what changes could be made and then maybe what dispositions would would help to serve that absolutely and the stoics of course didn't know their neuroscience or hadn't hadn't read kahneman and tversky etc but we could say you know this is our old brain creating these emotions or, or creating these thoughts these automatic thoughts which actually aren't helpful for us in modern day life right. they might have been helpful in, in prehistory i don't know but they're not helpful now and so we have to have that detachment to get our neocortex working and actually decide what is functional here. Yeah. And that's the same kind of thing that one would do in a stop that we talked about with CBT. Obviously the two CBT and stoicism are quite closely related. So it doesn't come naturally very often and it does require some awareness 